Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday from March 29, 2021. Here's today's rundown. Physician advisor Dr. Andrew Markowitz reports on how and why ridiculous denials are so frustrating for so many hospitals for so long. Is there a solution? His recommendation may surprise you. Ellen St. Samnick reveals new research taking place at the intersection of healthcare and social needs. She'll report on the social determinants of health. We'll also hear from healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Matthew Albright, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and healthcare attorney David Glaser. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, there are reports of an upward trend of new coronavirus infections among those states seeing increases, Colorado, Connecticut, South Dakota, and Hawaii. In the meantime, the U.S. is on track to meet President Biden's new goal of 200 million doses by his 100th day in office. And speaking of vaccinations, the free Krispy Kreme donut with proof of vaccination well, that's backfiring, that over health concerns of adding pandemic pounds, fat shaming, and obesity. It's a bittersweet story. In the meantime, we have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Now, last week I mentioned that terribly inaccurate article published in the Washington Post about the inpatient-only list changes. But the misinformation didn't end there. I was scrolling through my LinkedIn feed, and I noticed that a person I follow had a post about a podcast episode that they had just released on the topic, and I thought I'd take a listen. Now, this person has a regular podcast, and they seem very authoritative, so I figured I'd better check and see whether it's accurate. And I'll tell you, words cannot begin to describe how inaccurate it was. So just in case any of you listen to it, and I honestly have no idea how many people do listen to these podcasts, let me clear up some of the inaccuracies. First, as in the Washington Post article, the changes to the list were described as related to patient safety. That, of course, is not true. A patient is equally safe if their surgery is done in the hospital as an inpatient or an outpatient. It was then noted that Medicare states that patients over the age of 85 having a hip replacement can be admitted as an inpatient. Well, that's not true. Medicare allows doctors to consider the patient's risk in determining their admission status. An extreme age certainly is a risk, but Medicare never set an age cutoff. Then the inpatient only list was described as differentiating surgeries that can and cannot be performed at an ambulatory surgery center. Of course, that's totally wrong. There's a separate list for that called Addendum AA. Now, surgeries that are removed from the inpatient-only list may be added to the ASC list, but that's a different process. In fact, there's actually four categories of procedures, surgeries that are inpatient-only, surgeries that must be done at a hospital, surgeries that can be done at a surgery center, and finally, surgeries that can be done in a physician's office. Now, it was also stated that surgery at a hospital costs patients a lot more out-of-pocket than at a surgery center. While this is true that the payment to the facility goes down as the surgery moves from inpatient to outpatient to surgery center, and therefore you'd think the patient obligation would go down, there is an out-of-pocket limit for services performed in a hospital, and there's no limit at the surgery center. 
So for example, a joint replacement or spine surgery has a higher out-of-pocket cost to the patient at the surgery center. Now these changes are very confusing. I mean, think about it. The two midnight rule today is 2,736 days old and people still get confused by it. So just be careful where you get your information and always remember to trust but verify. Now, hopefully, all of you had the opportunity to read my article last week on rackmonitor.com about rebilling non-Medicare status denials. I want to thank Kay Larson, a lawyer listener from California who inspired me. I'd love to hear from more listeners about what I should address. In fact, a comment from a listener is why I'm talking about medical necessity, NCDs, and LCDs this Thursday in my webcast. Hope to see some of you there. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning. Hello and happy Holy Monday. Auditors are not lawyers. Some auditors do not even possess the clinical background of the services that they are auditing. Today, however, I'm concentrating on the lack of legal licenses because the standards to which auditors need to hold providers to are not only found in the Medicare provider manuals, the regulations, NCDs and LCDs, to add even more spice to the spice cabinet, common law also rules Medicare and Medicaid policies as in court cases. For example, the Jimmo B. Salibius Settlement Agreement dictates the standards for skilled nursing and skilled therapy in skilled nursing facilities, home health, and outpatient therapy settings, and importantly holds that coverage does not turn on the presence or absence of a beneficiary's potential for improvement. This Jimmo standard, not requiring a potential for improvement, is essential for diseases that are lifelong and debilitating, like MS. For beneficiaries suffering from MS, skilled therapy is essential to prevent regression. Now lately, I have reviewed numerous audits by UPICs in particular, which have failed to follow the GEMO's settlement standard and denied 100% of my provider client's claims, 100% all for failure to demonstrate potential for improvement for MS patients. It seems ludicrous until you stop and remember that the auditors are not lawyers. This GEMO standard is found in a settlement agreement. Even though it's from January 2017, and we hope that the auditors would know about this standard, obviously they don't, and it costs providers valuable money when auditors apply the wrong standards. While an expectation of improvement could be a reasonable criterion to consider when evaluating, for example, a claim in which the goal of treatment is restoring a prior capability, Medicare policy has long recognized that there may also be specific instances where no improvement is expected, but skilled care is nevertheless required in order to prevent or slow deterioration and maintain a beneficiary at the maximum practical level of function. For example, in the regulations at 42 CFR 409.32C, the level of care criteria for SNF coverage specify that the restoration potential of a patient is not the deciding factor 
in determining whether skilled services are needed. Even if full recovery or medical improvement is not possible, a patient may need skilled services to prevent further deterioration or present or I'm sorry or preserve current capabilities. And the auditors should understand this and should be trained on these proper standards. When you're audited by an auditor, whether it be a RAC, a MAC, or a UPIC, make sure the auditors are applying the correct standards. Remember, the auditors aren't attorneys, nor doctors. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks. Thanks, Nicole. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And for more information about healthcare auditing, be sure to read Nicole Emanuel's reports in the Auditor Monitor, and you can subscribe today to the Auditor Monitor. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, David Glazer, and Dr. Andrew Markowitz, who's standing by to report our lead story. It's Monday, it's March 29th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. Medical necessity is the Rubik's Cube of healthcare. The concept is used to determine if a patient's care is a covered service, but that simple explanation belies layers of confusion and contradiction. Medical necessity, in some cases, becomes the license payers use to deny claims. To avoid claim denials, take backs, and lost revenue, you need to have all the pieces in perfect alignment. There's also another level of medical necessity to consider, site of service, and one more element to the puzzle, patient status. Just as there are lessons learned in solving Rubik's Cube, in the upcoming webcast by Dr. Ronald Hurst, you can learn to solve the troublesome riddle of medical necessity. Register now to attend Unblocking the Riddle of Medical Necessity. It's this Thursday, April 1st at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, as I say every Monday, what could be risky today? Egotistical folks, Chuck. So when I was a kid and I had a hard time falling asleep, I would come up with stories to tell myself. In most of those stories, I played the hero. So why am I sharing this somewhat embarrassing insight into my psyche on a Monitor Monday segment? Someone's desire to play the hero, or at least look incredibly useful, can hurt you. And that's particularly true if the someone is your lawyer. A great lawyer will view their role as fading into the background while making their client look good. And here's a real world example of how it can matter. Let's say you're in the midst of a government investigation. The government is considering whether or not your facility paid kickbacks to a referral source by renting space at above market rates. You're considering waiving the attorney-client privilege because you relied on the advice of counsel. You had talked about the situation with a lawyer who thought it could work, but had a few concerns. So let's imagine two letters from that lawyer and how they could sound. First, an actual letter that was written to one of my clients. Such an arrangement must comply with the Stark exception and the anti-kickback safe harbor for the rental of office space. We're concerned that your arrangement violates the law. We are concerned that the profit could be viewed as an improper payment for referrals. Now let's ignore for the moment that the letter incorrectly claims that an arrangement must satisfy an anti-kickback safe harbor, because that's not true. But let's focus on the general tone. The lawyer is talking about the peril of the arrangement and how worried they are. Let's look at a second way of conveying the same sentiment. 
You've contacted me about a lease. You expressed a desire to be sure your lease complies with the law. You have asked me whether to consider, or you've asked me to consider the proposed structure. I think there are some opportunities for tweaking your arrangement. The second letter is still offering possible criticisms of the arrangement, but it's doing so in a way that highlights the general intent to comply with the law. The first letter has the lawyer seeking to demonstrate their expertise and emphasize all of the ways they can tell you the arrangement is deficient. The second letter is seeking to make you look good and emphasizing your focus on compliance. To a prosecutor, the difference in wording in these two letters might be the difference between the government concluding you're a rogue organization that requires punishment or a well-meaning organization committed to compliance. My point is that knowing the law is not the sole trait you're looking for in legal counsel. You want a lawyer who's gonna make you look good. A final example, you're considering a possible refund and you ask for your counsel's advice. The first lawyer says, I recommend you refund this money. The second lawyer says, your compliance process has identified a possible refund and you've requested my opinion on whether the refund is necessary. Do you see the difference in the framing? The first lawyer purports to be forcing you to do the right thing. They're portraying themselves as the boss. In the second, the lawyer is validating your good decision. Chuck, there's a beautiful song to consider when you seek out counsel. Hero by Family of the Year. Choose a lawyer whose philosophy is, I don't want to be your hero. I don't want to be a big man. I just want to fight with everyone else. Chuck, that song made an appearance in a movie we both liked, Boyhood. And having offered my legal hiring, movie, and song recommendations, my work here is through. I turn it back to you. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Alan Fink Samuels. Alan also has some on the Money Listener Survey. Welcome back, Alan. Thank you, Chuck. Good morning and good Monday, all. Well, I picked a heck of a week to take off. There was considerable news last week in the scope of health disparities and inequities. First, the Kaiser Family Foundation released one year in the pandemic, implications of COVID-19 for the social determinants of health. The report takes an in-depth look at industry data detailing how U.S. adults have and continue to cope with employment and income challenges, issues that directly impact hospitals and healthcare systems. Among the results, roughly 47% of respondents reported they or someone in their household experienced a loss of employment income, with one in five persons apl applying for unemployment since last March 2020. 61% of adults expressed difficulty paying for usual household expenses in the past week. 27% used credit cards or loans to meet basic household spending needs. Over 7% of adults had little to no confidence in their ability to be able to pay next month's housing payment, whether renter or owner. 11% reported food insufficiency. 
30% of adults expressed delayed medical care in the past month due to the pandemic. Close to 40% reported symptoms of depression or anxiety. And every racial and ethnic demographic group reported loss of employment income the first week of February 2021. Higher percentages reported by racial and ethnic groups. 53% Blacks, 59% Hispanic, 47% Asian, and 42% White, all expressing issues. 53% had children in the household, 26% were over the age of 65. The American Rescue Plan that became law earlier this month provides $1.9 trillion in funding to address the ongoing health and economic effects of the pandemic. Some provisions offer economic support for individuals, including direct stimulus payments to individuals, an extension of federal unemployment insurance payments, a child tax credit up to $300 per child per month from July through the end of the year, additional funding to address food insecurity, emergency rental assistance, and emergency housing vouchers. Now, in related news, the CDC is fiercely advocating to extend the latest eviction moratorium due to expire at the end of this month. As of this morning, the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs Office of Management and Budget website shows RIN 0920 Z as in Zebra A17, the temporary halt in residential evictions to prevent the further spread of COVID-19 still pending regulatory review. Not sure what they're waiting for. The meeting date and time for review are not listed. With ongoing COVID spikes hitting 20% of states especially hard, ensuring appropriate housing options for patients discharged from the hospital will continue to be a challenge. Watch out, especially West Virginia, Georgia, Montana, Pennsylvania, North and South Dakota, Illinois, Delaware, Hawaii, and especially Michigan, whose cases shot up by 47% over last week alone. More persons will continue to struggle with ongoing hardships for at least 50% of the population. What does this mean for your health system or organization? Well, it's time to put this topic out to our Monitor Monday listeners. This week's poll is, over the last month, the number of your COVID admissions has decreased, stayed the same, risen somewhat, risen considerably, do not know. Well, we'll see how our listeners are faring. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen. That was consultant and author Alan Driggs-Samnick. And as Ellen said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey later in this broadcast. Up next, Matthew Albright with the Monitor Monday Legislative Update. The Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic health care payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Thanks, Chuck. Last week on this broadcast, we talked about the Medicare sequestration. That's the 2% cut in Medicare payments that had been paused during the pandemic, but was set to go back at the end of this week. Early this month, we saw that the House passed a bill that would postpone the cuts, but there is some doubt that the Senate would do the same. Last week, however, the Senate did overwhelmingly pass legislation that postpones the Medicare sequestration cuts yet again, at least until the end of 2021. We also talked about a pair of bills being introduced in the House. 
one that would implement Medicare for all, ostensibly wiping out private health insurance, and another that would create a Medicare-like public option that was managed by the government. But both of these proposals will likely be overshadowed by a wide-ranging $3 trillion Build Back Better package that the Biden team is working on, provisions of which were released to the public last week. The Build Back Better plan, say that five times fast, will focus on infrastructure, education, taxes, climate change, and health care. Current drafts of the Build Back Better plan do not include a Medicare for All policy or Biden's public option though the package would make permanent the increases in the Affordable Care Act's marketplace subsidies that were passed under the American Rescue Plan. The American Rescue Plan, we remember, is the nearly $2 trillion COVID relief package passed by Congress just a little over two weeks ago. In a related move, the administration has extended open enrollment for the ACA marketplace again, this time through to August, allowing new enrollees to take advantage of those expanded subsidies adopted in the American Rescue Plan. Over 200,000 people signed up for the marketplace in the first two weeks of the original enrollment extension that Biden announced in February. And you'll remember that the American Rescue Plan also included incentives for states to adopt the ACA's Medicaid expansion. A recent analysis found that uncompensated care costs have fallen nearly 50 percent in states that have adopted the Medicaid expansion. There are 12 Republican-led states remaining that have not adopted the expansion, but it looks like at least two of those states may be interested. Both the Alabama and Wyoming legislatures are considering taking the federal government up on those Medicaid expansion incentives. Also in the Medicaid space, the Biden administration has formally withdrawn approval of work requirements that Arkansas and New Hampshire had tried to put in place under the Trump administration. The work requirements proposed by Arkansas and New Hampshire are actually central to a case now in front of the Supreme Court after lower courts had blocked the implementation of those work requirements. The Biden administration has asked the court to drop the case. Finally, Chuck, uh, the CDC continues to loosen its COVID guidance, at least for those that have been vaccinated. According to the CDC last week, vaccinated people, one, can hang out indoors with other vaccinated people without a mask, two, can hang out indoors with unvaccinated people from just one other household without masks. And three, if you've been vaccinated and if you've been exposed to someone with COVID, you don't have to quarantine or get tested until you have symptoms, unless you have symptoms, I'm sorry. So everybody go get vaccinated. I'll get vaccinated. We'll all hang out. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is a chief legislative affairs officer for Zealous. And coming up next, The interesting, very interesting results from today's Monitor Monday listener survey. You are listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Here's important information about the healthcare publication focused on third-party auditors. It's the Auditor Monitor. In the current edition of Auditor Monitor, you'll learn how thousands of healthcare providers were forced to request provider relief funds from the government. And in exchange for receiving the funds, providers must attest to their proper use and comply with reporting guidelines. Money found to have been misused will be recouped. Also in the Auditor Monitor, gain insight into the once unthinkable concept of rationing healthcare, a subject glaringly apparent as the nation continues to grapple with the coronavirus pandemic. Not an Auditor Monitor subscriber? Here's your chance to have your own edition. Go to the Rack University Bookstore 
and order your subscription today and start receiving the Auditor Monitor. Now is the time for the results of today's Monitor Money Listener Survey. Once again, here is Alan Finksamnick. Thank you, Chuck. And you are right. These results are very interesting and they have been changing as I've been sitting here. So 61% of our uh, listeners said that the number of COVID admissions has decreased. Uh, About 7% said the number has stayed the same. But what becomes concerning is the number that has risen somewhat. That number is And it just changed again. It's right around 15% of our listeners risen considerably is right around 5% and only about 11% do not know. So folks are really keeping their eyes on these numbers because the dollars, well, we know that those will greatly shift and continue to impact healthcare organizations. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, for too long, too many hospitals have been dealing with what many are calling ridiculous DRG audits. Here now with an approach that is sure to surprise many is physician advisor Dr. Andrew Markowitz. So, Dr. Markowitz, what is your approach to handling these, quote, ridiculous DRG audits? Thanks for having me on today. Insurers use denials to take back money. Incentivize outside agencies recapture revenues using computer algorithms not an identifiable physician reviewer. It is extremely irritating when they deny claims years after services have been rendered. Don't confuse these retroactive DRG denials as improving patient care. By downgrading diagnoses or removing comorbidities, insurers retain premium dollars for their stockholders, not their customers, our patients. They're not our partners in healthcare. In contrast, our goal is to preserve real dollars to help our patients and hospitals. Denials follow a few paths, justified, ambiguous, and ridiculous. One can only defend them based on chart records. Unfortunately, documentation never saved a life and remains an afterthought to physicians. Despite costly attention, improved clinical documentation remains elusive. With a justified denial, insurers may correctly identify unsubstantiated diagnoses. If legitimate, return the money and move on. With ambiguous charts, documentation may be faulty, lacking or contradictory. If the DRG or reimbursement doesn't materially change, where's the value? Are you arguing over the Titanic's deck chairs? Fight the fights worth fighting. Ridiculous denials are the most frustrating. They seem unsubstantiated. The charting seems clear. Review the denial points. Are the typical points unmentioned? Do they use outdated or inappropriate references? Track typical denial points and educate staff to close the gaps for the future. Insurers perform cursory reviews overlooking information not highlighted in the discharge summary. They don't look for buried points. Your overloaded providers shortchange the discharge summaries and don't update the problem list. A bad mix. Be a detective. The best information may lie in the EMS run sheet, nursing notes, ED labs, and ancillary data. Verify active diagnoses are documented, evaluated, and treated. Chronic diagnoses must be clinically relevant. Use objective data to substantiate the patient's disease, severity, or provisional diagnoses. Mid-admission changes may not make it to the problem list. Tell the story. 
Insurers can't debate validated national scoring systems. Use them. Define systemic effects or risk changes. Use consultant notes if supported. Refute their points sequentially. Summarize the denials on accuracy. Confirm our applied DRG and request an identifiable subspecialty reviewer. Write for the higher level appeal. Fighting denials is like trying to plug a leaky dam with your fingers. Why? Ridiculous denials are a sign, not a disease. Hospitals are enticed by lucrative promises that don't expect obstacles to billing. Maybe the denied case's value is inconsequential compared to the total contract value. Regretfully, hospitals ceded power allowing unilateral contract changes and limiting appeals to within the insurer. The disease is the poor contract that handcuffs our ability to protect the hospital. Hospitals need to advocate for their patient and gain access to lower cost use of arbitration or the ALJ. Otherwise, beyond complaining to CMS, hospitals must accept ridiculous denials. If uncontracted, use all of your appeal levels. We are better UR nurses and PAs when in the moment we become Don Quixote and fight windmills on behalf of our patients. The best way to win appeals is to prevent them initially with involvement in contracting before the first patient is seen. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Markowitz. Dr. Markowitz is a physician advisor at Cincinnati-based TriHealth. David, we have time for one question. Let's uh, answer that question. It's from Anna. We've got a listener in Texas, and the coldest question is for you, I think. This clinic or hospital has been treating migrants who have come across the border and are being brought into the hospital. Do you have any tips on how they can obtain reimbursement? I do, and good question, especially timely. Yes, Texas Medicaid covers providing services for refugees, and there's no wait period. So interestingly, you can, look, you can go to the Texas Medicaid manual and your regulations and get reimbursed from Medicaid for refugees. Chuck, I send it back to you, and happy April Fool's Day week. Thanks, David, very, very much. And that's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Buddy, and I want to thank you for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink, Sandry, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Dr. Andrew Markowitz, who reported our lead story. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody, and thanks for sharing your Monday with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.